Well, good evening, church. It's good to see you. Evening. So, uh, special treat tonight, and I'll give you a little backstory and fill you in. So, if you weren't here a few, it was two Sundays ago, or a Sunday, two Sundays ago, uh, a really good friend, I consider him family, Joe Salant, um, came up and gave his testimony, and he has been, Rob mentioned it, he's been doing an apologetic series over in youth on Wednesday night, so while we're in here, he's over, been over there for three weeks now doing an apologetic series, and it's epic. Um, so tonight, which is his final, his wrap-up, we're going to do is do a little teaser so that when he does this again, you all get sucked into doing the course from the beginning. So that's why the youth are in here and the youth worship, which was epic. But Joe's going to come up and do his wrap-up session on the apologetics. So let me just get out of the way so we can get right into the study. Uh, you guys welcome up our, our family here. Joe Salant. Thanks, John. It's an honor to be at this pulpit. Um, Rob McCoy has had such a huge influence over my life in such a short time. Um, I, I mean, I, I just hope I do the honor correctly and, and share with you some evidence with the re, of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Uh, the title of this uh, message is uh, Resurrection of Jesus Christ, Evidence and Implications. Evidence, so we're going to go over some evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ and also go over what the implications of that evidence are. All right, so if you direct your attention to the screen, this is the last part in a series, this is a four-point series that we went over with, uh, with the youth here in God Speak. And the series is, okay, the series is, uh, it's proving God through natural revelation. In other words, it's demonstrating the existence of God, the God of the Bible, without having to open up the Bible at all, which is pretty cool. A lot of the times when you go through public school today, uh, you're not allowed to open to the Bible. <laughs> and it's cool that God has given us enough evidence in the created order to be able to testify to his existence, I would argue beyond a reasonable doubt, which is the, uh, the legal burden in our court system. Beyond a reasonable doubt that if we put the Christian faith up on trial, we just had a semi-decent lawyer, I'll do my best myself today, uh, that we would have a guilty verdict that the, that, the, that the Christian faith is indeed guilty of being the one true faith, the one worldview that cancels out all the other worldviews, all the other ways of looking at the world are irrelevant and harmful if Christianity is true. And, oh, I'm responsible for doing the PowerPoint today. There we go. That's what was wrong. <laughs> Bear with me one second here. All right, there we go. So I got a little treat for you here. Before we get into the meat of the teaching, how many people here know the Bible is inspired? All right. So we're amongst, uh, we're amongst family, we're amongst friends, we all are of one mind. The Bible is inspired. Uh, 2 Timothy three sixteen talks about uh, the Bible being God-breathed, the word in the Greek, theonoustos, the breath of God on the scripture. And so God gives us little bits of evidence here and there. We don't just have to take them at face value. Uh, he says in, through Paul in Thessalonians, test all things and hold fast to that which is good. Um, if you want a quick piece of evidence that you can share with somebody, if you're in the elevator for five minutes with a skeptic, 
If you want a quick piece of evidence that you can share with them to defend your Christian faith beyond a reasonable doubt that this is true, that the Bible is true, and that you should take it seriously, and we have supernatural proof for it, flip open to Genesis 5, 1 through 32. It's a genealogy. It's a genealogy. It's a quick uh, a list of names. I got this first uh, back in, uh, must have been like 2005, uh, listening to the ministry of uh, Dr. Chuck Messler. Who knows, who knows Chuck Messler? Who likes Chuck Messler? Yeah, Chuck, he's a really cool teacher. Um, and so I picked this up. And this is really cool because after I went to Bible college and, and seminary, I'd been through three quarters of Hebrew, so I put this to the test. It stands the, the test of, I have, I have not heard a good refutation of it. The gospel of the New Testament is actually encoded in the genealogy in Genesis 5. Let me say that again. The gospel message of salvation through Jesus Christ, of, of what Jesus did, okay, to set the human plan right, is encoded in a list of names in Genesis, Genesis chapter 5. Now, if you went to a rabbi, uh, an, an uncompleted rabbi, a rabbi who does not believe in, in uh, a Messiah, Yeshua, all right, and showed him this, all right, you're going to you're gonna, you're gonna get a, a puzzled look and a troubled heart, and hopefully maybe the Spirit will work on him. But so check this out, okay? This is the names in a genealogy list of words. So from now on, don't skip the genealogies in your Bible. You might find something like this and be able to share it. So um, the first name is Adam, all right? Adam. Adam means man. Seth means appointed. Enosh means mortal. Canaan means sorrow. Mahalel means the blessed God. Jared means shall come down. Enoch means teaching. Methuselah means his death shall bring. Lamech means, the de- means despairing. And Noah means rest. All right? So if you put that all together, you have man was appointed mortal sorrow, but the blessed God will come down teaching, and his death shall bring the despairing rest. It works. It works. You can't... It, there's nobody that's going to say that Genesis was written after the New Testament. The Genesis was written after the Christian story. There's no explanation for that being there except Theonustus. God breathed Genesis 5. Every name in the Bible has meaning. Every place is specific. The story belongs to him. It's a story of creation, fall, redemption through Israel, church and new creation but the linchpin of that story how evil is defeated hangs on the topic that we're going to discuss today and that is the resurrection of jesus christ that is the resurrection of jesus christ there's a lot at stake the implications are absolutely enormous if the resurrection is false then our faith according to the apostle paul is absolutely vain it's worthless I'll go a step further. If the resurrection is false, our faith is harmful. It's harmful. You're asking somebody to give up their life. If there's only one life here, you're asking somebody to give it up completely for a fake God. Okay? The implications are enormous. If Jesus Christ didn't rise from the grave, we're all here in a vain activity. You shouldn't be here. You should be somewhere else. Even worse than that, if Jesus Christ didn't rise from the grave, then maybe another religion is true and you're, you're following the wrong faith. Maybe you should uh, uh, practice Hinduism and maybe you're going to come back as a frog for sitting here today. 
if the resurrection isn't true, then something else might be true. Okay? Implications are enormous. All right? We can't, can't, there's no way to overstate that. Okay? However, if the resurrection is true, then Christianity is the only solution to the human dilemma. It is the only correct way of viewing the world. The only correct way. There isn't Jesus rose from the grave, and then we can sort of not do what he says. And then there are other religions that may as well teach some kind of useful truth that if we adhere to them and be a good person, we don't really have to accept Jesus' message. Because if Jesus rose from the grave, what Jesus taught was true. Jesus taught the Bible is true. It's the inspired, inerrant word of God. Okay, speaking about the Old Testament, New Testament authors testify back to Jesus saying they have the authority to write these things, the 27 books that you have in your New Testament. Okay, so in other words, if the resurrection is true, then the Christian worldview is true. Well, if the Christian worldview is true, then what are we doing as Christians with this culture that has adopted secular humanism as the official worldview? Okay, so... There's two sides to this here. If we can learn the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we're going to get into a little tonight. Hopefully I'll be able to equip you enough. For some of you guys, this is going to be review. I see some some faces in this room that will probably know most of what I'm saying tonight. For other people, it will be your introduction into the topic. At the very least, I'll be able to hopefully give you some resources where you can continue the study for yourself. Um, but at the, but, but the, it's a, like I said, it's a two-sided thing. If we understand and, and know the evidence for the resurrection, then we will be able to influence culture. Then we will be able to say this is the worldview. And what is being taught in the public square with our tax dollars, okay, is a lie. And here's how, and I can prove it. And here's foundation. Because Jesus was an actual historical figure that fulfilled Old Testament prophecies, scripture, that's the pinnacle of God's plan. And then this event called the resurrection took place and we understand our lives and see the world as a result or in light of that. And so when you teach secular humanist that man is at the center, you're doing a huge disservice. You're doing a huge disservice to our children, to your children. And as lights in the darkness, as, as, as salt on the earth, we cannot allow that to go on and be silent. It's not about politics. It's about truth. I'll say the P word. We need to influence politics with the truth. Straight up. Straight up. Okay? That gets a clap in this church. In most churches, it gets, it gets a deep breath. You know, oh my gosh. Did, did, did the senior pastor let him say that? Didn't we're going to, oh wow, that's crazy. So, so implications are enormous. If, if the resurrection's not true, you're wasting your time. I'm wasting my time. We're hurting people. We're hurting ourselves. We better get the right faith going or no faith going. If the resurrection is, 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 is true, then we need to go ahead and start being able to master the evidence for it, okay? And then use that evidence. I know there are a lot of apologists, a lot of, way better than me, way better than I am, who take this evidence, treat it in an academic sense, and don't influence culture with it. 
They say, well, here's the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus. And by the way, you can take it, you can, you can, you can leave it, here's the proof. Go ahead. Take it or, or, or don't. Here it is. I'm doing my part by giving it to you. But we need to give the practical application for it. All right? And so, all right. Here's my hypothesis. If a Christian can make a good case for the resurrection of Jesus Christ in the American public square, they can strike a huge blow to the pervading anti-Christian worldview of secular humanism that is currently prevailing in the culture war of ideas. Scripture to back that up, 2 Corinthians 10, 4, and 5. 1 Peter 3, 15, 2 Corinthians 10, 4, and 5 talks about tearing down strongholds. Okay, Secular humanism is a stronghold. It's in an idea. It's an idea that is used to teach things that, that, are, that are against the worldview that is correct, which is Christian theism, which is, the, which is that Jesus Christ is at the center. All right? and, and 2 Corinthians 10, 4, and 5 says that we cast down strongholds. Well, how do you tear down strongholds if you can't win the cultural war of ideas, if you don't know how to address these issues? We, we can't, it's not enough these days to walk into the, to the argument and say, because Jesus said so, because the Bible said so, because our country was founded on scripture. We have to, we have, we have allowed our, our country as Christians, not just, we as Christians, the generic Christian, have allowed our country to get to the place where we have to start from scratch and argue the, argue the argument just like we're the Apostle Paul walking through the pagan Roman Empire. And so we need to start being able to do that. That starts with, and like I said, this is the fourth um, teaching in a series. I started by going through establishing absolutes, absolute truth, uh, and then I go to the main theistic arguments, the, uh, uh, not to get too, too deep into the weeds here, but the cosmological argument, the argument for the beginning of the universe, the teleological argument, the argument from design, and then the moral law argument, the argument from the existence of absolute morals. You say absolute morals, absolute morals don't exist. Well, if absolute morals don't exist, there's no basis for you to have any righteous indignation for anything. Social justice is an empty word. Okay. So, and then the final step is, okay, now that we've proven that Christian theism or the belief in the Christian God is true, let's narrow it down to, or, or now that we, I'm sorry, now that we have proven that a, a, a theistic God must exist, a creator of matter, energy, space, and time in the universe, let's go narrow that down to a specific God, and the specific God is Jesus Christ, and how do we do that? Through the resurrection is, is probably the fastest way, though there are others. Okay. Three steps to prove in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And when I say prove, I mean beyond a reasonable doubt. God has always left room for the human will in most, in most areas. Especially metaphysical areas of choice concerning your eternal destiny. Um, God has always allowed, and you know, for the Calvinists in this room, I'm sorry. But God has always allowed a place for human beings to deny Okay, and uh, so it's not like you're going to have, you're not going to go through it. I'm not going to go through this. And you say, oh, that's it. It's 100%, 100% weak. I can leave here. I can prove it. But I would say the burden of proof, I'd say about 95%. There's always that little window of doubt. But we make decisions based on what's best for our lives with a lot less certainty than 90 to 95%. A lot less certainty than that. And so we're going to give uh, three steps for proving the resurrection, defend those steps, and then talk further about the implications of those steps. So the first one is the credibility of the Gospels. 
we have to establish the fact that what we have in the New Testament, the four testimonies, the four stories that contain the resurrection of Jesus Christ, plus, if you want to be technical, the, the first one is, is 1 Corinthians. It's Paul's letter to the Corinthians came before the Gospels. But for the time being, the credibility of the Gospels must be defended. Second, we need to select specific evidences. Okay, This is if you have, let's just say, 20 minutes with somebody. You sit down at the coffee shop. Okay, first, I've got to defend the credibility of the Gospels. Second, I want to, I want to get a specific evidence of my choice, I like to use the martyrdom of the apostles because everybody likes to go over bloody details and why did these guys die and all that other kind of stuff. It's, 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 people love a story. People love action. And, uh, um, and the martyrdom of the apostles gives an excellent witness. It's exciting to talk about. Another one, I would actually need an entire session to go over, so we're not going to really touch on it all that much, <clears throat> is B, uh, excuse me, the conversion of Saul, the persecutor, to Paul the apostle. Quick word on that, it would be the equivalent for Saul the persecutor, the Pharisee, the zealot, to turn into Paul the apostle, defender, ardent defender of the Christian faith, martyr, who wrote almost half of the entire New Testament, okay? Would be the equivalent of Hitler turning into Diedrich Bonhoeffer. Okay, so we have a historical witness behind Paul, extra biblical witness behind Paul. We know he was a figure, we know he existed, we know he was one way, we know he was another way. What is the best explanation for Saul the persecutor becoming Paul the apostle? Is it guilt? So on and so forth. There is actually a really cool teaching that maybe one time I'll get to share with you guys that actually goes through and breaks down each one of the skeptics' attempts to explain the transformation of, of Saul the persecutor to Paul the apostle. And you see how feet, when they're lined up, there's, I, I forget, 15, when they're lined up, they look feeble, they look awful. You don't even really need it. You, Really? Really? I mean, and then you can go through the refutations and all that. But it's an excellent one to go through. We don't have time. Conversion of Saul to, Saul to, uh, to Paul the Apostle. And the third one is uh, the origin of Christianity from Judaism. Ignored today. And we're going to spend, I would say, 15 minutes on it. And it is to me. Now, you sometimes you have to hear it more than once because it's not just as, as, as Americans in this society, we're very highly, our thought process is very highly influenced by enlightenment thinking. In other words, we want a list of evidence and then we want to be able to say, yeah, I induce that that's correct. That's, 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 that's correct. I, I, I definitely deduce that's correct. But um, the origin of Christianity from Judaism is actually a case made from history, and it goes, in th it goes from understanding three terms. If you can put yourself in the place of a first century Jew, if you can put yourself in the place of a first century Jew and understand what the word Messiah meant to the first century Jew, not to you sitting in the seats today, but to the first century Jew, you understand what the word Messiah meant, you, understood what, you understand what the term kingdom of God meant, Okay, And then if you also understood uh, what the term resurrection meant to the first century Jew, 
you will realize that the only way that this group of first century Jews would have became what we know as the early Christian church is through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, as if their leader was physically risen from the grave. Okay, so it's an argument from history, all right? So we start out with the reliability of the Gospels, all right? And, oh gosh, you're not going to be able to read that. All right, when, we, when, when, when historians look at when historians look at ancient literature, works of antiquity, there's three tests that they run them through, okay? There's the bibliographical test, there's the internal evidence test, and then there's the external evidence test, okay? The bibliographical test is simple, okay? It has a complex, it's very simple. It is how many copies do we have and how close are those copies to the original documents, all right? And so a lot of people today, you'll hear, oh, well, yeah, the New Testament was written, you know, kind of generations after the original events, and, you know, it's kind of like a game of telephone, and who really knows what the original events were, and yada, yada, yada. Here is what you say to that, and you can use this test, and I'll give you a couple examples right here. You say, do you trust trust any history on Caesar that we have? Okay? You would. Your history books are full of it, correct? Okay. Well, with Caesar, the earliest copy, okay, we have is, uh, you know, 44 B.C. around. I mean, the, early, the, the original was written 44, uh, in 44 B.C., and the earliest copy that we have is from A.D. 1000. 1,200-year gap. What if I presented you with a Bible and said, you know what? 1,200 years from when this happened, here's your first copy. You'd laugh at me. Okay? Seems like the Bible's being held to a different standard. Seems like the Bible. I wonder why the Bible's being. Ask them why. Why is the Bible being held to a different standard? Why is the New Testament, why are the Gospels held to a different standard? Okay? We have historical biographies, right? Why are they being held to a different standard? Obviously, because of their call, because of what they proclaim. All right? Uh, let's, let's do an easier target here for them. All right, ask them about Plato. Do you believe any information? Do you, do you believe we have any of, any of the writings of Plato today? Okay, do you believe it's worth studying a philosophy class? In other words, Plato's Republic, for example. Do you believe Plato wrote Plato's Republic or had some influence over Plato's Republic? Do we have, oh, okay, cool. Well, all right, let's take a look. 347 BC, if we want to be generous, when, when the book is written, okay, when the works are written, our earliest copy, 8,900, another 1,200 years. Okay, scroll down, and we have the New Testament. Okay, first century A.D., obviously, is when the New Testament is recorded. The 27 books that we have in the New Testament, including the Gospels, which were written uh, 60 A.D. to maybe 85 A.D., depending on where you place the Gospel of John. Mark is usually credited with being the first one. And we have, in less than 100 years, in A.D. 130, the John Ryland's manuscript. And actually, this is contested. This is contested. Craig Evans, a scholar out of North Carolina, says that he has a manuscript dating to 80 AD. Original. Original manuscript dating to 80 AD. Don't know too much about that, but we'll just go uh, for the standard evidence right here. The John Ryland's manuscript of John, uh, circa 130 AD, less than 100 years from the original, and between 300 of the originals, we have, get this, 5,600 copies of the New Testament. 
full. 5,600. Okay? So, skeptic, with all due respect, if you're going to accept the Iliad in, if you're going to accept the Odyssey in, if you're going to accept Plato's Republic in, okay, if you're going to accept Caesar's Gallic Wars in, let's just say that the New Testament should be accepted as originally written in the first century, the date's given. Okay? So that's the bibliographical test. Next, we have the internal evidence test. The internal evidence test is exactly what it sounds like. It is the evidence from inside. Crack open the Gospels, and what do you see? Okay? The style and the writing in the Gospels is what you would expect from a first century Jewish writer or a first century Greek writer. Okay? It's not, there, there are no anachronisms. There's, there, there are no third century events and customs projected back into the first century. That's called an anachronism. We don't find that. Okay? Uh, since Luke was written before Acts, follow me here, Luke written before Acts, Luke wrote two volumes. He wrote Luke, his gospel, and then Acts. And since Paul was martyred in Rome, Historians will argue 64, 67 AD under Nero, okay? And since Acts does not record the death of Paul, who from chapter, what is it, 10 on, is like the main figure in the book of Acts, we can surmise that Acts is written before 64 AD, and then Luke must have been written before that. So we have a first century witness to the Gospels within a generation of the original events. Okay? Did y'all follow that? Okay, cool. Uh, Skip over that. The stories of Jesus' human weaknesses and the disciples' faults. If you read through the Gospels, um, if you were to write a story of a Savior, and you were included in that story, wouldn't you write really cool stuff about yourself? Would you want to include really embarrassing stuff? Like a little boy fleeing naked into the woods, or in the case of Mark, or um, would you include the fact that you were so brave as to cut off an ear, but then you uh, chickened out at the, at the crucifixion and, and at the passion, and you denied your Lord three times? Would you, would you include that if it wasn't true? Okay, embarrassing events. When you read something with embarrassing, that has something embarrassing in it, and it's, about, and it's coming from the author, usually those tend to be kind of honest. Usually, okay? I would write, if I was concocting a story, well, now, let me see. That's 365 pounds of all muscle now. You know? And, you know, I mean, they, they, came, they came for Jesus. They did. They came for Jesus. Jesus said, don't hurt him. I said, I'll try not to. You know, so I restrained myself. And, well, you get the picture. The, the story would look more like that. All right? Embarrassing events. Also, the Gospels, and here's a big one from, from the internal evidence test. Oh, gosh, I got to get going. Um, the internal evidence test. You know how, I don't know if you've ever ran across a skeptical argument that, oh, well, this Gospel said there's three angels at the tomb. Well, this Gospel said there's two angels at the tomb. This Gospel says Peter got there first. This, this Gospel said the women got there first. Which one is it? All right? So in other words, there are minor discrepancies. 
And if you really, you know, want to get into the weeds, depending on your definition of what inerrancy is, okay, you might have a bone to pick there. If you, if you want to give them something, if, if the skeptic feels like, I'm not going to believe unless you give me at least part of my argument, you can say, okay, well, you can, you can have your definition of what inerrancy is. But here, if you were in a courtroom and you saw four witnesses come to the stand, describe an event exactly the same way, let's say 15 details, exactly the same way, and you're a defense attorney, what are you going to do when you get up there? Exactly. There is no possible way that these four people can repeat verbatim from the exact same perspective. It is beyond human experience, all these, all these events that took place regarding this murder case. This is collusion. And there's no way you can argue otherwise. And that case would be in the hands of the defense. So when we look at the eyewitnesses to Jesus, why would we expect God to do anything different? Why would we expect God to move the pen of one gospel writer different if he's going to say, you know what? The burden of proof is going to be on them to show that, look, these guys didn't collude together. The discrepancies aren't, it's not like there were no angels and there were 40 angels. It's not like, you know, uh, that Jesus got up and pushed the stone out in one account and ran into a field and in the other account they had to carry him out. No, I mean, the events, the, 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 the actual uh, events of Jesus's resurrection, of, of, of Jesus's crucifixion, of other elements in the gospel line up perfectly to the point where you would, ex- what you would expect them to look like if four different people were looking at them. If you look from, the, from, a, from a legal perspective at the four Gospels, and you see the testimony given by the four different Gospel writers, it would be enough to convict that Jesus did in fact get crucified and rise from the grave. Okay, internal evidence test. All right, next. The external evidence test. The external evidence test is simply what kind of evidence do we have outside the Bible? Outside the Bible. Outside the Gospels. Outside whatever document you're trying to prove from the ancient world or whatever. What do we have outside that confers with what's inside, that concurs with what's inside? And even more specifically, if you can get it, do we have enemy attestation? Do we have an enemy of the Christian faith testifying to the fact that there was a man named Jesus, a powerful enemy, saying, yes, there was somebody named Jesus that lived, that performed miracles, and that was crucified. If we had that, wouldn't that be a powerful piece of evidence? Well, look what we have. The Babylonian Talmud, article, uh, Sanhedrin, Article 43a. Okay, the, this, is, this is a group of Pharisaic rabbis in the middle of the second century, basically getting together and saying, and, and writing in their Talmud, okay, well, how are we going to explain this whole Christian movement, this, this Yeshua figure that claimed he was the Messiah? What happened? They said, oh yeah, everybody knows what happened. On the eve of Passover, now check this out, on the eve of Passover, Yeshua was hanged. Now who was that? 
Okay. Yes, she was hanged. For 40 days before the execution took place, a herald went forth and cried, he is going forth to be stoned because he has practiced sorcery and enticed Israel to apostasy. Practiced sorcery and enticed Israel to apostasy. Okay? Why wouldn't they just say, hold on, why wouldn't they just say there was no guy named Jesus that lived, he certainly wasn't a Jew, nobody like that practiced any miracles that are recorded in the New Testament. No, no, no. He lived. He practiced sorcery. In other words, he did miracles, signs, and wonders, the type that you see in your Gospels. And he led Israel astray. Anyone who can say anything in his, in his favor, let him come forward and plead on his behalf. But since nothing was brought forward in his favor, he was hanged on the eve of Passover. Enemy attestation. Ask the skeptic. You believe there was somebody named Jesus that lived? Now, very few will say no. Very few of the, of, the, of the learned, educated opponents of the Christian faith will say no, there was nobody named Jesus. Say, well, do you believe that, that Jesus practiced, practiced miracles or that his opponents definitely thought that he practiced miracles? Ah. Now that one, they'd love to deny. They'd love to deny that one. But they can't. Okay, because this group of powerful rabbis wrote this. Okay, and then he was he was executed. It say he he was going to be stoned, but then he was hanged on the eve of Passover. Gosh, it's like you're reading right out of the Gospels. You might as well be reading right out of the Gospels. These are these are ardent opponents to the Christian faith. Absolutely ardent opponents to the Christian faith. Second century Jewish rabbis, uh, Pharisees who wrote in the Talmud. Now, the next step in our process is the witness provided for the resurrection by the martyrdom of the apostles. Who knows who Chuck Colson is? All right. Chuck Colson worked in the Nixon administration. All right. He was, Chuck, he was, uh, uh, he was Richard Nixon's hatchet man. He did the dirty work. For President Richard Nixon. And so, when Nixon's going to be elected again, uh, the Watergate scandal breaks loose. All right, in the DNC headquarters, uh, 1972, bugged, there's a break in, and there are serious connections, okay, to the Nixon administration. All right? And so, 12 people, 12 people, fairly high up at different levels in the Nixon administration, are implicated in this scandal. All they had to do was keep their lies straight, shut their mouth, march forward. Some of them might have to do a couple years of prison time. Everything would have been okay, for the most part. By the way, does anybody realize, like, you know, the, the, the press was all over this. The press was all over this, 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 this Watergate scandal. Man, they were on it. All of a sudden, the journalists were coming out, and the First Amendment journalist rights, and the, the free speech, and uh, the power. The, I mean, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, the, the freedom of the press. And gosh, this is a constitutional tipping point and all that. That's a Republican that was in there, and there was a Republican scandal. And every time there's a Republican scandal, here are the rules, okay? With what's going on today, all right, I better end. You know what? I'm going to keep going. I'm going to keep going. I'm going to keep going. Let's, let's, okay, I'll put it this way. I'll put it this way. If there's a scandal and there's a Republican that's in office, it's a constitutional crisis. When there's a scandal and there's a Democrat in office, there's something wrong with you. All right, for pointing it out. That's just the way it works. We'll keep moving. All right. 
So anyway, this is what Chuck Colson said about the resurrection. Okay, now notice, 12 of the people, 12 of the people, Chuck Colson spent time in prison over, over Watergate. Um, and this is what he said, okay? He later went on to have a powerful prison ministry, radio ministry, excellent man, um, unbelievable testimony. He said, I know the resurrection is a fact and Watergate proved it to me. Well, how? Because 12 men testified that they had seen Jesus raised from the dead. Then they proclaimed that truth for 40 years never once denying it. Everyone was beaten, tortured, stoned, and put in prison. They would not have endured it if it wasn't true. Watergate embroiled 12 of the most powerful men in the world, and they couldn't keep alive for three weeks. You're telling me 12 apostles could keep alive for 40 years? Absolutely not. One of the more powerful quotes that I've heard on the resurrection. And, you know, I, I, actually, I actually went ahead in, in my excitement and skipped one part. There's another, there's another uh, piece of evidence here, okay, that we, that we go after, after we go over the origin of Christianity from Judaism. Uh, Gary Habermas, okay, Gary Habermas, uh, the, the world's foremost historian and evidentialist on the resurrection of Jesus Christ, uh, he has something called the 12 minimal facts. And what he's done is he's taken all the skeptical arguments on the resurrection, all the, all from, from liberal scholars, all the way to some conservative scholars. He's taken all the skeptical, all the, all the, uh, um, all the orthodox arguments uh, for the resurrection, all the research on the resurrection, and he's compiled 12 minimal facts. That if you walk into Princeton Theological Seminary or Yale Theological Seminary, the, the bastion of liberaldom, you'll be able to, to present these 12 minimal facts about the resurrection of Jesus Christ concerning the resurrection and not have them be argued. And then when you see them lined up, you say, well, what's the most logical answer for that? So we'll go over that, hopefully, if we have time to. That's the third step of the process. I got a little bit of, ahead of myself. Please, uh, please forgive me. Okay, the martyrdom of the apostles. Now keep in mind, okay, Chuck Colson's 12, they couldn't keep their mouth shut for more than a couple weeks, all right? Here we go, martyrdom of the apostles. Matthew wrote the gospel of Matthew, killed by the sword in Ethiopia. This is from church tradition. Mark, dragged through the streets of Egypt by horses. Sounds cool, right? All they had to do was deny the fact that Jesus is Lord, Curios, deny the fact that Jesus is Lord. More importantly, deny the fact that you saw him or that he was raised from the dead. Deny the fact that Jesus was resurrected from the dead. In other words, they would have had, if this was a lie, if this was a lie, or if it was some kind of hazy truth or some kind of spiritual vision or something like that, they would have had to go to their, they would have had to go to these kind of deaths with that in their mind, all right? Dragged through the streets of Egypt by horses. Put yourself in their place. Luke, hang from an olive tree in Greece. John, boiled in a basin of tar, conflicting reports on that. Some say tarred and feathered. I don't believe that was a practice right then in that area, but whatever. Um, but he actually did die from old age eventually. Uh, John 21, 20 through 25 uh, has uh, something interesting on that. Uh, Peter, crucified upside down in Rome, around the same time that Paul was executed. All right, James the Just, Jesus' brother, thrown off the southeast pinnacle of the temple. Uh, Jesus was also taken up there by Satan and shown the kingdoms of the world. James the Greater beheaded in Jerusalem. Roman, here, check this out. According to church, this is, this is from Eusebius, church history, okay? James the Greater beheaded in Jerusalem, 
had such a powerful testimony, went with his death with such grace, with such conviction, with such gospel power, that his executioner said, you know what, kill me next. I want to go with him. Bartholomew, also known as Nathaniel, flayed with a whip to death. That's awful. When you think about that, you see the passion of the Christ? Well, imagine if they just kept beating him with the whip. That'd be even worse, right? Andrew, X-shaped cross in Greece after being tortured by a whip as well. Thomas, stabbed with a spear in India. Jude, arrows. Matthias, stoned, beheaded. He replaced Judas. Barnabas, stoned. Paul, beheaded in Rome under Nero. It's interesting, the providence of God. Before Paul was beheaded in Rome, he was given about two, three, four years to write on house arrest. That's where we have the prison epistles, the prison epistles in your New Testament. And so God has everything under control, even when it seems like he doesn't. Now, we've got to really get through this. How did the early Christian movement spring into existence amongst a group of first-century Jews, Second Temple Jews? Where did this hope for the resurrection come from? It didn't start as some kind of abstract teaching. If you look throughout the Old Testament, you don't find much on it. There's a little spot in, in Job, Job 19.25. Um, you can certainly make inferences. It wasn't a, a list of expectations that, the, that, the, that these Jews had at this point in time. Where did it come from? Well, when the Jews were in exile, okay? Now, if you understand the story, okay, Israel called into existence... The call of Abraham called into existence as the solution to the problem of Adam's sin. As the solution to the problem of Adam's sin. The kingdom of Israel, after the wanderings, the the taking over of the Holy Land, um, the kingdom of Israel set up under this law, under, under Torah law, and of course under kings, all right, was supposed to be a representation of what it looked like when God is dwelling with man. Okay? And so that whole theme is so important to understand in the heart of a Jewish person coming down through the centuries is that their existence was to show that God dwells in the temple and that, that they're God, God's people and that though they may have had a human king on the throne, that God was on the throne and that there is no king but God Okay, and so disobedience, okay, disobedience, obviously, this couldn't work out. This couldn't be the end of the story with Israel. Israel had the same problem of Adam's sin that it was supposed to reflect to the world on how to deal with. Israel, too, needed a savior. It's all throughout the law. It's not like God changed his mind when Israel disobeyed. All right, it's all part of the story. But Israel's disobedience leads to Israel's captivity. 720, 722 BC, we have the Assyrians destroying the northern kingdom. Okay? Five, 605 to 586 BC, the Babylonians demolish the southern kingdom of Judah. Okay? Ransack the temple. All right? Demolish everything in the city. Leave, um, leave a couple of peasants there to tend the land. Bring in other conquered people to intermingle and just really just do it. The glory, as it says in Ezekiel, 
has departed from the temple at this point in time in 586 BC. The temple was the center of, Ju- of, of Judaism. It was the center of Jewish life. It was the marker of the fact that God dwells with, d- dwells with man. It's gone. It's gone. Okay? And so, this, this time, this time of exile, a lot of times we hear preachers talking about it lasting 70 years. And then the return from Babylon happening after the Persians take over from the Babylonians. And, you know, you have the, the 70 weeks prophecy coming to pass the first, uh, the, the, uh, uh, given, given to Daniel as a, as a marker of time going forward. And then finally Daniel receives this word. And then we see Ezra and Nehemiah where the actual, the people come back and build up this kingdom, but it's not like before. It's not like it was before they didn't have their freedom to worship God any way they wanted to worship God. They didn't feel empowered to be God's people representing covenant with creator God to the world. Now, did they? They were back physically. Yeah, the 70 years came to pass. God was true to scripture. God brought them back, but there was still this emptiness in the Holy Land. Okay? So it was during this time when the second temple was being rebuilt and you read, you read uh, Ezra and, and Haggai and, and Zechariah. That's why these books are so important for us to understand the mind of the second temple Jew heading into the period of Jesus Christ. Okay, The, the temple is being rebuilt. The people need to be encouraged. They're, they're starting to develop, to develop this, this eschatological theory, this theory about the end times. They're starting to think, okay, God, you have us back here, but when are you really coming back? Our countrymen are being killed all throughout this, this, uh, this Persian empire, this Greek empire. Then later would be the Roman empire. Okay, we can't practice our religion. We can't practice the true religion in peace anymore. And so we, we have returned from exile, but we, re- we yearn for the return from the real exile. And that's how they thought during this period. And so as you look at Second Temple Judaism, if you look at the literature, especially the outside literature, we see obviously in, in Ezekiel 37, 1 through 14, the dry bones message, the dry bones of, of bones coming to life in a valley. Okay, of dead bones being resurrected to life. In a valley. And this obviously is, is eschatological or end time meaning for, for God's people. For the nation of Israel, for God's people. We see that, we see that resurrection language. Exile during this period of time comes to mean the suffering of God's covenant people. Not just the fact that they were in Babylon, not just the fact that they were in Assyria, not just in the fact not just the fact that they were scattered throughout this area, but the suffering of the covenant people was exile. And the vindication of the covenant people, because we have a true God. We have a God who is just, a God who is righteous. So people who adhere to the covenant, people who return, they were punished for not obeying Torah. They were disobedient. People who return to obeying Torah, they should be rewarded. They should be vindicated. So what happens to such a person when he dies? Well, there's only one thing that can happen. God would have to raise him up on the last day. Physically. The resurrection was a physical hope. It was a physical body. It is very important. It was, it was, they had other words to describe. They had other words to describe a spiritual experience, a life after death, uh, running into somebody's ghost or something like that. So when you get the first century 
Christians, the first century followers of Jesus, when it's projected on them that, oh, they were talking about a spiritual experience, nobody, no first century Jew, no first century Jew would use the term resurrection to denote some kind of ethereal, spiritual experience of Jesus Christ. They would have said they saw his angel. They would have said they could maybe felt the presence of that person with them. They would have never said that Jesus Christ was resurrected from the dead. Resurrection meant the vindication of the covenant people. And they expected all of it to happen at once. Where would a first century Jew get the idea that one person comes back from the dead? If it didn't happen. This is the culture they grew up in. Where would they get that idea? Let's take a look at the book of Maccabees. Okay, this is in the Apocrypha. Martyrs who who taunt their torturers by assuring them that they, the martyrs, will receive Israel's God, receive back from Israel's God the physical bodies that are now being torn apart. This is during the period that we get our tradition from Hanukkah from. The Seleucid Empire, the Hasmoneans, when, when Judas Maccabeus rebelled against the de- desecration of the temple and was lifted up as a Messiah figure. These are the writings we have from that period. This is the idea we have about resurrection. There's another quote from the song of, from the uh, Wisdom of Solomon, another work of, from the Apocrypha. These are intertestamental works that testify to the Jewish mindset during this time. Look, Resurrection was a revolutionary movement. It was a sign of the kingdom's first arrival. The kingdom was here. And, when, and when, when, when the kingdom was talked about, when the kingdom was talked about, it wasn't this experience that to a first century Jew, the kingdom wasn't, oh, well, God's sort of ruling my heart. God has control over my emotions. The kingdom's here. no. The kingdom to a first century Jew meant God is king and no man, no man can counteract his rule. No man can counteract his rule. It was connected with the messianic movement. Okay. The the Jews at that point in time believed that there would be a Messiah. Okay. And I got, I'm trying to wrap all this in together here. We got about 40 more minutes of slides. I realize. But stay with me here. So, so there is, okay, so, so what, what, what the expectation is, is that a Messiah, a Messiah figure, a David-like figure will fulfill the promises of the, of, of the covenant to the Jews and deliver Israel from the political oppressors, from their oppressors in that area. And so this, to be a Messiah at this point in time, you had to do two things. One, you had to cleanse the temple because God's house wasn't ready for him. That's why he wasn't coming back. That's the main thing. The first thing that Judas Maccabeus did was he cleansed the temple in the second century BC and awaited God to return. That is a messianic action. The next thing you had to do was you had to rid, you had to deliver Israel from the pagan oppressors. You had to deliver them. So what good was a crucified Messiah? To a first century Jew who's thinking, okay, like when Jesus is talking to Peter or John 
okay, or Nathaniel. He, in their minds, they're thinking, okay, you're the guy that's going to rid us from all these, all these oppressors. You're going to probably cleanse the temple. And isn't it interesting what Jesus does when he gets to the temple? Isn't it interesting what he cleanses the temple of? Isn't that interesting what he cleanses the temple of? True evil. Okay? True evil. Not a Gentiles in the inner court. True evil is what he cleanses the temple of. Interesting anyway. Okay? And you're going to, you're going to cleanse the temple and you're going to deliver from the political oppressors. If, if, if that's what they're thinking... When they're surrounded by, when they're, when they're surrounding Jesus and listening to him, if that's what they're thinking, when Peter's confessing in Matthew 16, that yes, you are the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one, the one that are going to do these things, then of what good is it if you're, if Jesus is crucified, a crucified Messiah is no good whatsoever. There were six or seven of them that got, they, they, they met evil deaths at the hands of the pagans by the time Jesus got there. Some of them are referenced in the book of Acts. Other, others are referenced in Josephus and other works of antiquity. Either way, what would happen to a Messiah, to the following of a Messiah who was killed at the hands of the pagans? You had two options as a first century Jew. Either you go about your way and you just kind of fade into obscurity and do your thing. Or you find a different Messiah. But for some reason, this group, this group of Jews, when they, after they saw their Messiah be crucified at the hands of the pagans, and they disperse and they run away, all of a sudden, three days later, they come back and start talking in terms of kingdom of God and resurrection? Where did they get that from? If you understand the history If you understand what those terms meant, that Jesus was resurrected from the grave, the kingdom of God is here, and we're going to order our lives as if God is reigning. Now, it might not have looked like we thought it would look. It looked different. But we're going to figure it out by the power of the Spirit. Where do they get that from? Where do they get that from? So the argument from history is the more powerful one to make. When you go through the pages of history and you understand the culture and you understand what, what their language meant, there is no possible way they could have taken those terms and applied them to Jesus Christ the Messiah unless they sincerely believed that he was risen from the grave. For Christianity to be a resurrection movement, a kingdom of God movement, and a messianic movement. Somehow a killed Messiah is the true Messiah. Somehow the resurrection happened in the middle of history instead of at the end of history. My time's up. (laughs) 